You're listening to a Burnt Toast production. The Terrible Business of Salmon and Dusk Written and read by Mike Bartlett Book One How to Disappear Completely Episode 6 Theo is halfway across the road before she thinks to check for traffic. A horn blares as a white and black Ford Capri swerves to avoid her, taking the corner in third. Close behind it is a brown Cortina, the radio blaring Led Zeppelin, the passenger window rolled down so that a mustachioed bloke with curly hair can leer out and whistle. The car chases the Capri around the corner, leaving nothing but choking exhaust and overcooked tyre. This whole scene is so fast and rude and unexpected that Theo can only stand bewildered on the curb. Going the other way, a knackered horse drags a grimy marionette of a bloke driving a cart full of junk. Rag and bone, old clocks and broken cameras, tape decks and VCRs like tanks. A voice rasps out, Time for old tat! Broken hearts! Dead dogs! Things what you never owned! The owner of the voice is hunched over his reins, his tattered coat pulled up into a hooded cloak, so that it might as well be the reaper sitting there, come for her dead appliances. Theo is glad he doesn't look her way. Time for old tap! His voice echoes away down the street, already fading out. A few doors down the pavement, two men are enjoying a street fight. One of them in bell-bottom flares and a tan leather jacket, sandy hair flopping across his eyes, the other in double denim. An older man in trilby and executive coat hides in the doorway, by turns cheering, wincing, and cowering. Theo stares, waiting for sirens or passers-by to break it up. Nobody comes. The fight goes on, the men's shoes scuffing the pavement in a Mobius loop. It is colder than she remembers. Her coat is still damp from the rain, and this new chill sinks ice into her bones. She heads for the door, noting the red phone booth on the corner. Had it been there before? A young man in a long coat stands in its warm light, wreathed in cigarette smoke, making love to the receiver, smiling and talking and laughing at his own jokes. As she watches, he pulls a black pocket book from his coat and, leaning against the glass, starts jotting something down. The skinhead bouncer waits for Theo on the threshold, sizing her up without interest. He has seen every kind before, and hers twice on Saturdays. You coming in? Is she? She's come this far, but her voice has gone. The idea of saying anything, of hearing her normal voice in this unreal place, is too much. The most she can manage is a smile, which the doorman ignores. All the same, he props open the door with the toe of his astronaut boot. Pressing inside, Theo no longer knows where she is. Gone is the minimalist sterility. Now she is greeted by warmth and conversation, the familiar aroma of beer and tobacco. The ceiling is lower, the lights dimmer. Everything, manifold punters included, appears tinged the same yellowish-brown, the air thick and warm with nicotine, giving Theo the uneasy sensation of being inside a smoker's dried, scarred lung. The textured wallpaper is paisley and brown about it, scuffed wooden chairs and tables gathering in large, adoptive families. There's no sign of TVs, and the only phone is an old Bakelite monster on the bar top, the numbers worn away beneath the dial. Music buzzes on a small transistor radio beneath the bottles. 
To her left is an open fire and a stone hearth, bracketed by pockmarked dartboards. To Theo, there is something familiar about this jaundiced squalor. She feels a pang of warm nostalgia for times and places she has never known. Isn't this the London she grew up with, via television and film? A London where the grime and coal dust of history hasn't been scrubbed back and sanitised. She might have stumbled onto the set of an old movie, Earling, Powell and Pressburger, The Italian Job. All those films her dad made her watch. Here is mystery. Here is romance. Here are sticky carpets and sweating wallpaper. It is as if the 21st century has never happened. Theo checks the door, checks the floor, checks her head, looks again at her ink-stained palm. Where the pub had been empty, it is now heaving. Every table is crowded, every conversation loud. At a glance, Theo might have stumbled into a costume party without a theme. By the fire, a group of young men in pilots' uniforms are singing Don't Let's Be Beastly to the Germans. Roman soldiers are playing darts and knocking back the mead. Punks are playing cards with teddy boys. Low-rent gangsters in shiny suits are making deals over Japanese whiskey. A fight breaks out in the corner between a ginger roundhead and a toothless bloke in chainmail. The bouncer moves in quick to confiscate sword and pistol. You're both barred, he says. Again! The pair sulk for the door. There's no sign of Carol and her name badge. The woman behind the bar is probably mid-forties, but dressed younger, in classic punk chic. Half a tin of purple paint is spread across her cheeks like a pair of vicious bruises, and a thumbprint of lipstick is pressed between chin and Cupid's bow. Her frizzy hair grows in every direction like a particularly attractive fungus. She watches Theo approach with a tired kind of pity. Here we go again, she thinks. What can I do for you, my lovely? Hello? First time in a manor? Theo nods, then shakes her head. I was in here before, I think. She looks at the woman across from her, toweling a pint glass, and has the urge to make friends. I'm Theo. The woman gives her a frown. Theo reads its creases for signs of pity or embarrassment. Constance, she says. Feeling more generous, she adds, Let me guess. Broken heart, right? You have that look about you, if you don't mind me saying. There is an appealing theatricality to this woman that Theo finds oddly reassuring, as if all of this is a game, that there might be rules to make sense of things that have none. My boyfriend disappeared last night? It happens. Does it? More often than not, my darling, but fret not. This is as good a place as any to start again. Give it time and you'll find the right manner, and all that hurt and shame and whatever else you're carrying will be in the dim and distant. I can do your room here short term. Reasonable rate. Constance leans in to wink and whisper. Are you still carrying? Theo blinks. She wants to understand. Money? Time, my sweetheart. Most trade it in before setting foot on a manor. Half try to buy it back a fortnight later. The two witches will have stung you a future or two, correct? Theo nods, shakes her head. Nods. No, she is convincing nobody. Sorry, I think I have a condition where ordinary words no longer make sense to me. I, I didn't understand a word you just said. The ink on your thumb. That was the sisters, yes? The girls at the bus stop. They said something about a twenty-pound note. Yes, well, those harpies aim low. They only want a moment of your time. Others will want a lot more than that, believe me. The landlady speaks with such sudden gravity 
that Theo feels guilty for understanding nothing. Deciding to stick to what she does know, she says, I came here to find my boyfriend. I was given a card? Oh. Constance puts down her glass. Her eyes narrow and her pursed lips hold the vowel. Your lost squeeze. You came here for him. Theo takes out one of the Polaroids she was given and lays it on the bar. Nobody else remembers him. A policeman, I think he was a policeman, seemed to think I might be crazy. Maybe he was right. Constance frowns. She turns the photo over without looking at it. And you think you want to find him? Theo looks at the back of the photo the landlady has refused. I thought so. Why do you ask? People usually have a reason to disappear, my darling. She slides the photo back. Theo wants to ask more. Has she seen Josh? But the woman grins and is off into the grand bonhomie of the hostess. To be absolutely frank, I thought that's what you were doing here, my lovely. Sometimes it's better not to know. That's long been my philosophy. Theo takes back her photo, wondering again if she has it all wrong. If your lover disappears, maybe the polite thing is not to ask why, and to never go looking. She wonders what it would be like, never knowing, the ghost of Josh forever lurking. I don't think I can be that philosophical, she says. Why don't you have a drink? That is more my kind of philosophy. What can I get you? Theo checks out the bottles behind Constance. Names and brands she half remembers from old magazine adverts. Stacks of ashtrays, the beige paisley, a calendar of topless women dated 1979. She looks at what is on tap, bitter, lager and ale. Not a craft beer to be seen. She's mostly alone at the bar. The old man two stools up could almost be the same cloth cap she saw half an hour ago, wondering where he was. He sits hunched over a half-empty glass, ready to defend it from all comers. Meeting Theo's eye, he snarls. Constance smiles, patient. Don't mind him. She slides the pint of bitter across the counter to the punter who has just walked in. He's off sick, she says. This new punter is, Theo thinks, the only man in the room who looks like he belongs here. He is wearing a wide-lapelled, brown pinstripe suit, a fat tie, and a wing-collared shirt. His hair is brill-creamed, his sideburns chunky, and he's looking about with more confusion than even Theo has managed. Where's... he says, before realising Constance has answered him. Oh, they're students. He jerks his thumb over his shoulder. Who? Oh, rag week. Is it? Ah, bitter. Here you are. Constance nods at the glass that is already in front of him. A pint of... uh, right. Finding his conversation redundant, the man fishes in his pocket for a handful of change that he empties onto the counter. Constance waits for him to wander off before tossing the coins into the nearest bin. Regular, Theo says. A local. I only met him once. Well, that's every night for me. Theo decides to leave that alone. Are they students? Constance laughs. She takes Theo's right hand and turns it over, revealing her ink-stained palm. Come now, my sweetheart. You don't really believe that. With a sinking feeling, Theo realises the woman is right. Theo is a sensible person. She prides herself on that. Of course, she wants to argue with all of this to point out to everyone between these walls that they can't be here, that she can't be here. But she knows that something has happened. Rules have been rewritten to allow for the impossible. No, I don't think I do. But I am worried about the implications. That calendar? Not very women's lib, is it? The landlady says, following her gaze to the calendar. Still, the punters seem to like it. 
Never understood the fuss about boobs myself, but that's men for you. Wish I could say I never understood the fuss about them. Women's lib. It says 1979? Yeah. Time marches on. Everywhere except here. Constance is dead serious. Matter of fact, as a neurologist, or your common old garden nutter. Theo considers her words, looking for an alternative reading, some metaphorical profundity. She can't find one. Thing is, I was in this pub before. It was different. That's the 21st century for you. No style. You've noticed, haven't you? It's not for everyone. Okay. Theo sits on that for as long as she can, trying not to dwell on the card in her pocket. I don't really know how to ask this, she says, when the silence has started to hurt. Are we in the past? Sort of, my lovely. Yes, since you're sitting down. The truth is, little pockets of the past still exist all over London. You're sitting in one of them now. One of the girls outside said, Manor? You did too. Right, this is a manor, a little corner of England where it's always 1979. And there are others, other places like this. Same places, other times, but only if you know where to look. This is a small one, only about eight hours and three blocks. Others are larger. We get them from all manners here, my lovely. Stone Age to digital. The odd tourist, too. The Albion's a safe port, uh, an entry point. Do you know what you want? I keep asking myself that. I think I've lost my way. Constance blinks. I meant here. Oh, um, yes. I was looking for someone, I think. Not my boyfriend. Another boy. Or two? Theo holds out the card, but the landlady isn't interested or surprised. I meant a drink. Oh, um, lager and lime? Constance nods, picks up a glass, and pulls a pint. Adding a dash of cordial, she slides it over. Theo reaches for her purse, but the landlady shakes her head. There's a slate running. I'll get me money. One day. Oi! She clicks her fingers at the old man down the bar. His pint glass is now full again. I've told you before, you can't sit on one all night. I've got overheads. Last warning. The man mumbles assent and empties his glass. Constance gives him a last tut and brings Theo her pint. She flaps her tea towel southwest. Corner booth next to the picks. Edney's book as usual. The ease of this, after everything, is bewildering. Really? I'm in the right place. Well, don't get too excited just yet. Leaning back, Theo can see past the old bloke to the last in a row of booths against the far wall. A young man is sitting alone, hunched over a cup of coffee and an open book. His trilby is on the table in front of him, but Theo recognises the scowl. This is the boy who gave her the photographs. A pinched-looking man in a white suit is hovering by the boy's right shoulder. There is something of a faded county vicar to him. He has a thin moustache, brilliantine strands of dark hair plastered east and west, and is crumpling a Panama hat between nervous hands. As with everything else in this place, there is an air of anachronism. He looks as if he dressed fifty years ago for a garden party and has never changed his clothes since. In the centre of his chest, a few centimetres from his heart, hangs a heavy silver locket with a chain to match. Inscribed with filigree, it appears somewhat incongruous, too showy for a vicar sharing sandwiches with his flock. As Theo watches, the man picks at the boy's elbow, and the boy brushes him away with a sort of distracted annoyance afforded a blue bottle. The man steps back, admonished, hat crumpled further, into a lurking impatience. The card is still between Theo's right finger and thumb. She considers the rough typeface. Is the boy salmon? 
or dusk. She thinks of the leader of the girl gang, rain glistening on her dreads. You want Nero, he's all right. She looks again at the card, almost feels ready to embarrass herself. There is something about the daftness of this bar, the distance it feels from her usual life, that brings a kind of liberty or recklessness. She can disgrace herself and disappear without the faintest bruise. Besides, she has come this far, hasn't she? First and last bit of advice, my sweetheart, Constance says. Don't trust any of them. They've been outside the rules so long they figure nothing applies. Theo has another mouthful of lager, considers it and everything else. The smile she gives the landlady is that of a woman tired of being the butt of other people's jokes. It's not true, though, is it? Any of it? I mean, it can't be. Seriously. Constance smiles with undue patience. The first drink is on the house, my darling, she says. I think you've got a few sharp shocks coming. Twisting her head left, she bellows at the man whose glass is once again full. Right, get your coat, your bard! Is your name Nero? The boy doesn't look up from his book. It is the paperback, well-thumbed and spine-broken, flattened against a beer mat on the table. I don't know. Who's asking? His voice is gruff London. Um, I am? Dark eyes flick up at her, a quick assessment and a dismissive sniff. <laughs> Still don't know. Theo stands her ground. You gave me this card. No, I didn't. The frustration of a day that has felt designed to confound her begins to simmer again. Sorry, am I saying the wrong words? Is there some kind of code? With infinite regret and a half pint of patience, the boy looks at the card. Okay, maybe I will give you the card, but I ain't done it yet. What does that mean? It means he'll be with you in a minute. His lordship? Oh, you know him. So you are narrow. She hears the boy's teeth click with annoyance. The man in the white suit steps forward. I was here first. I've been waiting nearly half an hour. The boy winces and mutters something Theo doesn't catch. He glances up at Theo. Part your bleeding arras, then. When Theo only blinks, Nero looks disappointed. Sit down, he says. Not you! This latter objection, hissed through his teeth, is directed at the linen suit, whose backside is halfway to a chair. Again, the man retreats to stand by the bar. Theo sits down across from Nero, coddling her pint and wondering about making conversation. Thinking better of it, she glances around the bar, looking for someone who might be the other half of her business card. The occasional partly-baked face lifts from a drink to glance her way, but nobody seems much interested in her. The booth beside hers is occupied by six men, wearing little but flowery tattoos. They are rowdily, if joyfully, arguing about something. At first, Theo thinks they are speaking English with a heavy regional dialect, then wonders if it might be Gaelic. Every other table or booth is much the same. Private tribes in their own pocket worlds, like a collection of different clubs or hobbyists, each engaged in passionate conversation, but none of them with anything to say to their neighbours. Picks and Romans, roundheads and cavaliers, wartime Tommies and pinstriped gangsters, suffragettes and skinheads. It is as if all of London's history is happening at once, and the punters here have just stepped out for a swift pint or three. She tries to imagine that everything Connie has told her is true, that each of these punters will, come closing time, head back to their own manor, a small patch of London that might be centuries apart from the streets around it. She is embarrassed at herself for entertaining the thought. But there is another feeling as well, 
one she does her best to tamp down. Is it excitement? If this is a manor, if she is sitting in a pub in 1979, if this is happening now, tonight, where might she be tomorrow night, and when? Theo shakes her head and sips her lager and lime. It is sweeter than she likes and ten times as warm. Out of the corner of her eye, not wanting to be obvious, she takes in narrow. His top shirt button is fastened, his two-toned brogues are polished, there is a gold watch around his wrist and a couple of ostentatious rings to match on three fingers of each hand. Beneath the fur coat is a blue teddy boy suit. The black coffee on the table is half drunk, but there is a full pint of bitter that he hasn't yet touched. At first glance on yesterday's Camden Street, she noticed only the surface scratches and scruff. Now she sees the thought and effort, the careful assembly of his outfit. Everything is second-hand, stolen or borrowed, but chosen with purpose. Theo has the feeling this boy has created himself from these clothes, as if hoping he might one day grow into them. Nero is aware of her attention, but studious in ignoring it. His attention remains fixed on his book, the cover of which he keeps pressed to the tabletop. When that isn't enough to diffuse Theo's interest, he looks up to object and... <gasps> sneezes. Once. Twice. Four times. A handkerchief comes out and flaps about his damp nose and watering eyes. Theo smiles. She's glad to have something, anything, to talk about. Are you okay? He glances at her as if this is her fault. I'm allergic, he says, pocketing his hanky. To me? Cat hair in the coat. So it's not mink? Nero makes an effort to miss her joke. Theo persists. Do you have a cat? Twenty-three, last count. Theo puts down her pint. You've got twenty-three cats? Only till Tuesday. Okay. Once again, Theo gets the feeling this boy is taking pleasure in being obtuse. His nonsense is there to build a distance between them. She isn't having it. Do you have conversations? Ever, I mean, because talking to you is making me feel like I've forgotten how. Nero only gives her a blank stare. He seems about to say more, but instead sneezes another achoo, eight times. Achoo, 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 achoo. Bloody cats. If there is more coming, it never arrives. The man from the phone box slides into the booth beside Nero, cheerily thumping an empty pint glass on the table. Give us 5p, he says to Nero. I gave you my last one ten minutes ago, so give us another. He puts out a palm, and with the longest feasible hesitation, Nero presses a coin into it. The man glances at Theo. Who's this? She's one of yours. Is she? The man gives Theo a hopeful smile that she accidentally returns. She has the instant impression that he finds her amusing, for reasons that elude but worry her. Where'd you find her? She found me. His hair is tousled in a shaggy quiff, a silk tie is loose around his crumpled collar, his pinstripe waistcoat is unbuttoned, and his checkered trousers rolled above twelve-hole cherry-red Doc Martens. A hand-rolled cigarette is wedged behind his right ear. That much is Art's student at the disco. But over it all is shrugged a long tweed coat, an ancient, multi-tailed and heavy-cuffed thing that might have been cut for the restoration. It is the sort of coat that takes serious confidence to leave the house in. He is younger than Theo thought at first, probably more or less her own age, and almost pretty, with high cheekbones and a strong jaw. 
The blue eyes are honest, but there is something wicked about the mouth. Feeling it will be easiest, Theo takes an instant dislike to him. Snatching the full pint from where it has been waiting, the man turns back to Nero. Keep her on a simmer. I'll be back in ten. Nero pulls back his left cuff and taps the watch there. We've got a meet in five. But the other man is gone in a flare of tweed. Is he a friend of yours? Theo asks. No. There's no arguing with his tone, but he still seems to regret it. It isn't Theo he is angry at, she realises. He sniffs and makes a gesture at cordiality as if admitting that, actually, there is a polite boy hiding behind the gruff. That's Kilby, he says. Another kind of confession. Whatever you're here for, it's his fault. You've been listening to The Terrible Business of Salmon and Dusk. Book One, How to Disappear Completely. Written and read by Mike Bartlett. been listening to a Burnt Toast production.